so th this is a this is a long haul, and I think what that means is that's going to have repercussions on our political system, and ultimately, fourth turning is a political process, um, and. And I, and I think in some ways our system is near the breaking point. There was a great um, survey out of um, uh, Wall Street Journal NBC just a couple of days ago, and they basically said that 80% of Americans agreed with the statement that uh, uh, America is out of control. That was the voice of economist Neil Howe, who was talking about U.S. consumer sentiment. I feel like this is something identifiable to most people. If you are alive at this point, then you're probably feeling what he's describing. You can think of this podcast as a book review or maybe a free-form response essay. Today's podcast is in response to a book published when I was 12 years old in good old 1997. That was the year Princess Diana died in a high-speed car wreck in Paris and Mother Teresa died a few days later. It was the year the first Harry Potter book was published and the movie Titanic premiered. Remember this one? When the ship docks, I'm getting off with you. I'm not really sorry that we're reviewing an old book. I'm interested in ideas on this podcast, old and new, and I'm excited to do a book review about something a little different. The book in question is called The Fourth Turning, An American Prophecy by William Strauss and the guy you just heard, Neil Howe. My wife bought it for me for my birthday, and when I opened it up, I saw that it had been signed by Neil, which is pretty cool. A historian I know, Phil Eisman, recommended The Fourth Turning to me, saying that it's a good historian's tool, though it shouldn't be overused. I've taken that to heart. That was a great warning from Phil. The subtitle of this book, The Fourth Turning, is What the Cycles of History Tell Us About America's Next Rendezvous with Destiny. Yeah, that's why you shouldn't overuse it. That's a heck of a subtitle. You might think you're going to find all the answers in here. Social theories like The Fourth Turning don't have the scientific rigor of hard science theories, like gravity or relativity. You have to be careful with them. Some are great, others are dull, and many are easily abused. Theories like this are kind of like a knife without a handle. The fourth turning lets you carve up history into bite-sized chunks, and you're liable to cut yourself if you're not careful. I'm going to entrust this theory to you, the 12 people who listen to this podcast, because I think it's really crucial for understanding our world right now. But first, I want to take a moment to get personal. At 35, on the older end of the millennial spectrum, I think I can safely say that my entire adult life has been spent in crisis. My adulthood has been the bitter winter of my society. So let me, let me explain this to you. I was 16 when 9-11 happened. I remember I was walking through the back hallways of my high school on the way to AP computer programming. That class kicked my ass. I didn't have the brain for computer programming, and I still don't. Anyway... I remember the friends I saw in the hallway that morning. I remember walking through and getting to class. I think I was actually late, but it was just in time to watch a plane fly into the shining symbol of global capitalism, the World Trade Center. Okay, I have got to interrupt you right now. Sorry. Richard Hack, thank you very much. We appreciate the book is called Hughes. We want to go live right now and show you a picture of the World Trade Center where I understand, do we have it? No, we do not. We have a breaking story, though. We're going to come back with that in just a moment. First, this is today on NBC. As other people have noted, the top news story the week before that was about shark attacks. 
In the next few years, I watched patriotism turn to jingoism as people my age were sent overseas to fight wars in the Middle East and Asia. The draft was actually floated, and I remember at the time thinking about that and thinking about the possibilities. The people we fought didn't speak our language or in the end have much to do with a bunch of Saudi Arabian-born hijackers. I still remember getting to a fist fight about the Iraq war in 2003. I hated the idea of the war. I didn't have good reasons. They weren't well-researched. I was 18, 17, 18 years old, something like that, and I'm surprised they even let me graduate high school, honestly. But I remember one guy trying to hit me for my opinion. I threw a punch. It went back and forth for a few seconds. We broke it off. It was a weird time. From CBS News headquarters in New York, here is Dan Rather. It was just over 90 minutes beyond President Bush's deadline for Saddam Hussein to leave Iraq that U.S. warships and planes, there were F-117 stealth bombers involved, launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. The war went bad, as everybody knows. By 2006, there was all kinds of battles going on in Fallujah and other cities. In the end, thousands of American soldiers died in ethnic conflicts that were completely alien to us. So I started college in 2003, got my bachelor's in 2007, master's degree in 2008. I was a little academic. As I neared graduation in December of 2008, I remember watching the news. I don't think I slept that October. The collapse of Lehman Brothers set off a wave of panic on Wall Street. With the U.S. economy already reeling, the government denied the 158-year-old bank the emergency funding, the liquidity it needed to survive. I think it was a lesson to other firms. You remember, Lehman was leveraged 35 to 1, 39 to 1. I think it was a lesson to firms, hey, we'll let you fail. you got to get your ship in order. That's right. The economy was crumbling. Eviction skyrocketed and banks collapsed. Wealth evaporated. I hadn't had a real job before that. Now I might not get one. I did, though, get a job. My first job was working as a case manager in welfare services, which was a lot of writing resumes for people who have lived on dollars a day for years. Since the Great Recession, every organization I've worked for has scrambled for money, experiencing budget freezes or rescission. Everyone I know had poor job prospects. Promotion? Promotion, you got to be kidding me. According to economists, those budget constraints have meant that millennials have a hole punched in their future earnings. It will never recover. Our economy and my economic future is already scarred. So finally, at the age of 35, just this year, I got a job in an industry I wanted to work in for a decade. I started my job on April 1st, 2020. Yeah, pretty funny, right? By then, the stock market was plummeting for the second time in my adult life. I'm pretty sure the unemployment rate is higher than it was during the Great Recession right now. Well, there we go. The third crisis of my lifetime. 9-11, Great Recession, COVID-19. Kind of happening on the decades when I think about it. Nowhere in between did we get bored. We've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. Institutions are rotting. Churches are emptying and corrupt. And government agencies are sluggish, except when it comes to corruption. And the military is unable to win a war. Some of my peers still live at home. Most are saddled with enormous debts. And there's a persistent pessimism that climate change will turn the world into a sauna. Now that I've read all that sounds kind of remarkable. It sounds like I've lived through an extraordinary time. I guess I have, and you have too. But why did it happen this way? 
Why has it seemed like there's been a series of well-timed disasters all happening around the turn of the century? Is it that I'm an entitled millennial who expects too much out of the world? Oh man, maybe. Or did previous generations experience this kind of turmoil? Did they know what this was like? It's hard to say, right? Every time has its difficulties. But if the last 20 years of crisis after crisis after crisis has seemed extraordinary, it wasn't unpredictable. I want you to keep this biographical note about my experience of the world in mind as I bring you back to this book I've been reading, The Fourth Turning. Remember, that's what I started with. The thrust of this book is simple and powerful. History does not proceed in a linear way. Instead, history is a cycle, about 80 to 100 years long, that repeats itself with predictable regularity. History looks a lot less like a ruler than it does a tape measure folded back on itself. History is a temporal roulette wheel. All right, I'll stop with the analogies now. Before I explain how this cycle works, I want to note that Strauss and Howe rejected the linear history theory. What what do I mean by linear history? It's the tendency to see ourselves at the end of a long thread of progressive advancement throughout history. You know, this is the theory that humans started as cavemen, developed language, invented agriculture, conquered the environment, built empires and civilizations, and finally, in the last century, reached the apex of our abilities and moral complexity. That's an easily digestible history, isn't it? It's clean. You can police your behavior based on that linear progression. And what I mean by policing yourself, I mean that it makes sliding backwards a sin. Don't be a caveman. Don't be a troglodyte. Don't be a Neanderthal. The sins of our forebearers are laid bare along the long line of our historical progression. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a line talking about the progression of justice. Let us remember that there is a creative force in this universe working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil, a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. History is a line, he says, but it's bending upward towards a better reality. In our culture, we're promised more and more. I think this linear view of history is Judeo-Christian. It's a bright future awaiting the chosen. What happens on earth stays on earth. There's an ascension at the end of the line. Another world is waiting for your immortal soul. This theological concept gets transformed into secular terms. We evolved from the digging stick to the wheel, then to the combustion engine, and now the smartphone. But the authors of The Fourth Turning pointed out that other cultures perceived history differently from the Judeo-Christian Western view of events. Back in 2012, you might recall there was fear of the Mayan calendar turning over. Why was, why was everybody scared of the Mayan calendar turning over? Well, the new year was supposed to be the harbinger of the apocalypse. The year 2012 apparently would cause mass destruction. Some pretty terrible movies were made out of a dubious interpretation of the long count calendar. This mass suicide adhered to the Mayan calendar, which predicts the end of time to occur on the 21st of December of this year. This year. This year. The Mayan calendar, like the Babylonian, Hindu, and pre-Hellenistic calendars in the Mediterranean, were actually circular. 
They talked about the long count of history where cycles drive events, behavior, and the outcome of your life. For these cultures, the cycle might be thousands of years long, but it defined the broad strokes of existence. Cycles made sense, and you ordered your thoughts that way. Our world under this theory is ruled by cycles. The procession of the equinoxes, the orbit of the earth and the sun, the moon's phases, these are the forces that define our everyday life. Cycles are the beat of the great concert of the cosmos. While the Mayan calendar had something like an 8,000-year cycle, in Rome there was a seculum. All right, that's S-A-E-C-U-L-U-M, seculum. The seculum was the idea of the 80 to 100-year cycle. The seculum was a mystical concept caught up with life, death, and being in the world. It wasn't abstract either. The seculum was personal to every human being. And in Rome, this seculum concept, about 80 to 100 years, was really centered around the seasons of one's lifetime. So let me talk about this for a second and the seasons you're going to live through. As a child, you're in the spring of your life, a time of promise and beginnings. There's danger and maturity, but there's great potential for learning. This period lasts roughly from ages 0 to 20. That's when you come of age, end your training, and enter the world. The end of this period of your life are the trials of man and womanhood, the SAT tests, the graduations, and eventually leaving home. As a young adult, roughly age 20 to 40, you're in the summer of your life. This is where the growth happens and you mature into yourself. You work hard and learn, developing the skills you need for the latter half of a lifetime. In the dangerous and unpredictable world, you cut your teeth on new experiences, take some hits, and build a family and wealth. You begin to care for others. At ages 40 to 60, you've entered the autumn of your life. A little creakier than before, now you reap the harvest of your summer, settling into family and career and the connections you've accumulated. This autumnal season is the season of management and careful planning. People now report to you. The responsibility you have to others has a new complexity to it. You're asked to run systems and pass on knowledge. At 60 to 80 and beyond, you finally gain wisdom, and you're in the winter. While you retreat from the frenzied work of summer and autumn, you pass on your gained knowledge to others. You begin to consider how your legacy will impact others. You are, at this point in your life, flush with money and connections and wealth. You now have to determine how you'll pass it on to others. Whatever you did in your life, your legacy is complex and stretches far behind you. However, it's also the time of falling apart and sickness and illness. And there you go. The Roman 80 to 100 year seculum, broken into four cycles, give or take a few years in the mix. And what's remarkable about the 80 to 100 year cycle is that it hasn't changed that much, even in the thousands of years the concept has appeared. We still come of age between 18 and 22, we still celebrate our retirement in our 60s, and the life expectancy of a nice, long human life is somewhere in the 80s. This cycle was, and is, utterly predictable, just like the march of time, just like the sun rising, just like the moon cycles. We go ever onwards. But of course, we don't proceed through life alone in one cohort, I guess you could say. At each stage of our lives, we encounter a different mix of people along the way. In the spring, you have grandparents in the winter. In the autumn, you see children in the spring of life just getting started. The seasons of aging work in tandem with the aging of those around you. So imagine history as each of these seasons, interacting with one another, sort of churning their way around. 
This is, of course, the idea of generations. Xers, millennials, Gen Z, baby boomer, silent generation, greatest generation. Strauss and Howe are responsible for naming my generation, the millennials. The millennials are, at the time of recording, well on their way to middle age, with my birth year of 1985 being on the older side of the mix. Boomers supervise millennials but are now retiring, putting Xers in charge, while millennials watch the young whippersnapper Gen Z Zoomers come of age. You start to see the pattern here, right? To me, it's powerful because it's an experience we all share and acknowledge daily without really talking about it. But in this churn of generations, there's a darkness. Call it a sickness or a disease. Whatever it is, according to Strauss and Howe, it's human nature. They think that this 80 to 100 year cycle of life, I guess you could call it, also corresponds to the cycles of history, precisely the same length and with all the same parameters. Human societies go through periods that they call turnings. And we, perhaps unsurprisingly to my listeners in the year 2020, are in the middle of the winter, the last period in the cycle. We are currently today in the fourth turning. But the fourth turning doesn't happen once. No, it happens every 80 to 100 years. Case in point, about 80 years ago, the world stood on the brink of catastrophe. That year was 1940. Germany was invading Denmark, Poland, Norway. World War II, which America entered in 1941, followed two and a half decades of economic depression and bloodshed. The U.S. loses millions of jobs and hundreds of thousands of lives in Europe. And don't forget that the pandemic of 1918, that influenza pandemic that we covered in the other podcast, started about 100 years ago. Rewind 80 to 100 years prior to that era. In 1861, the U.S. began a civil war that ripped apart the Union. Slavery, a massive economic institution in America, was called into question. Blacks are freed in the Union, and if you believe W.E.B. Du Bois, their freedom enlistment was the only reason that the Union won the war. Okay, rewind one seculum from the 1860s. In 1776, after huge economic pressures, the colonial United States declared itself independent from the crown and then proceeded to fight a bloody war of independence with the most powerful global empire seen since Rome. Each of these periods of American history happening roughly 80 to 100 years apart were the winter of their society. All seemed dark. The future was unknowable. War and disease and economic devastation occurred. But then, look at the aftermath. In the United States of the 40s and 50s, you had a massive economic boom. You had the GI Bill and the creation of what's called Pax Americana, or the global peace enforced by America. After the Civil War, you had Reconstruction, a brief but a real period of rebuilding that created new economic engines in the South. Freed slaves began to spread across the country. And after the Revolutionary War, you had the founding of a new constitutional order that became a model for France's own revolution and for the rest of the freedom-seeking world. So if the last crisis was 80 years ago, and that was roughly in the 1940s, let's count forward. All right, I'm not the strongest at math, but wait. Oh no, that means the crisis is going to occur now. Yep, you see the cycle. The funny thing about this book is that it was published again in 1997. Strauss and Howe predicted that America would face a 20-year crisis starting somewhere in the 2000s. They brought a lot of data to bear to prove this point. 
The book is chock full of examples, many of them American, but many not American, showing that history marches approximately to the beat of a human life. And hey, why not? It's hard not to think we're in a crisis when I hear people say over and over again in these unprecedented times. Aloha, family and friends. We are living in unprecedented times. I appreciate everybody being here, and these are unprecedented times and there are times that are difficult for everyone. Uh, just doing a wee video today about what's happening at the present time and these unprecedented times as we call it now in, in, in our wee country. In these unprecedented times, yeah, I'm sure you've heard that. It's hard not to look at this book, published in 1997, and think it's prophetic. So on to the turnings. Let me delve into the turnings they're talking about and explain the character of each period of a society's life. This is all from an American perspective, so if you're listening from another country, please write in. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. The first turning is the high, the springtime of renewal. It's when families are strong, ideals and ethics are settled matters, social structure is unified and simple, and practicality rules the day. Think of the 1940s and 50s. That was a post-war era of immense wealth creation. It was the boom time. Morally, it was also when a woman was at home caring for her family, Jim Crow was in full force as a moral stopgap of sorts, and it was thought of as a simpler time. The second turning is the awakening, the passionate summer of a society. In this period, family structure and the certainty surrounding moral ideals start to weaken. Institutions come under attack for being dispassionate and unempathetic. A new generation starts to chafe against their elders. Post-World War II, this is, of course, the 60s and the 70s. That's when civil rights splintered society and introduced reinterpretations of moral concepts like equality and challenged the status quo. It was also a time of creative forces. The Beatles arose in the early 60s and shattered old conceptions of music. The third turning is called the unraveling, and this is the autumn of the cycle. Families have become weak, institutions are even more stagnant, and the culture has become cynical. Individualism rules the day. Technology seemed to make us more connected by silicon, but less connected by spirit. The future isn't seen as being bright, it's seen as being dark and moody. Everyone seems to know that winter is coming, to borrow the phrase from somebody else, and it sounds a lot like the 80s and 90s, the era of disco and then grunge. The fourth turning, of course, is the crisis. It's when ideals gain champions, stigma attaches to those who don't comply, institutions that define the next era begin to form, and it's all done with an overwhelming sense of urgency. The conflicts during the crisis are total, all-encompassing, and deadly. Does this start to sound familiar to you? It kind of sounds familiar to me. But relax, because the flip side of the crisis, the winter, is that the wheel turns. The next cycle, according to Strauss and Howe, is as relieving as it is inevitable, and that cycle is the springtime of renewal. The crisis years taught people what's important in life. The exhaustion and anxiety of the crisis turns to relief. Family and your friends take on greater importance, security becomes paramount, and wars come to an end. The unresolved questions of the crisis are either resolved quickly, or they simply are left unanswered. It is also the time of renaissance. What I want to give you in this podcast is hope. Hope feels like a resource, right? Something you need to ration out. It's scarce. Know this. 
If we can take a lesson from the previous crises, it's that the people who survive these, especially those who are young during the crisis, are often better off for it. There's a meme floating around, and you know how much I like to get my history from memes. Anyway, this meme uses the painting pictured in the Tinderbox logo, if you want to look that up on your phone or wherever you're listening. That's a painting called The Course of Empire by Thomas Cole. I got to do a podcast on this painting sometime because it's one of my favorite, and it's really a series of paintings more than one. Anyway, as memes go, this has text floating over four phases of an empire's progression. Wait, four, four phases. Wait, I think I've heard of this. Now you know why I want to do a podcast about it. And this meme contains four phrases. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. As far as quotes go, I'm not totally sure who came up with this in the first place. I had a hard time finding it. If you know who came up with it, please let me know. But it gets the idea across. The young generation coming of age in the crisis becomes hardened. They are tougher, more thrifty, and perhaps more cunning. It kind of reminds me of the theories of left-handed people being more intelligent. You might have heard this, that six out of the last 13 U.S. presidents were left-handed. High-level professional musicians, such as classical violinists, are also left-handed. It's not as simple as IQ, but research suggests that left-handed people gain more creative problem-solving ability because they have to deal with the adversity of living in a right-handed world. And just for the record, I'm, I'm not left-handed, so I'm not, like, evangelizing here. Anyway, according to the fourth turning theory, the millennial generation is poised to become the heroic generation for American society charging headlong into the first turning. Millennials will inherit the ruins of an old and decayed order. We are the builders. In time, according to the authors, the millennial generation will be seen as the stuff of legends. The greatest generation that lived through the Depression and World War II is often seen this way. They call it the greatest generation. Crisis creates heroes. But let's say that the millennials really do rebuild everything. And let's say that the crisis goes into the rearview mirror and it's really fading off into the horizon. Well, that's when the awakening begins. Succeeding generations, the Zoomers, I guess, or Generation Alpha that comes after them, won't just be bowing down to millennials. No, the world isn't that simple. Because recall 1960s America. Think of the sexual revolution and the civil rights movement. Consider the moonshot and Gil Scott Heron singing that the revolution will not be televised. New moralities will spring up and challenge millennials. Those stodgy, thrifty, practical millennials will balk. If you believe what the fourth turning is selling, millennials won't be able to accept the new order of things. What do I mean by new moralities? Well, they could be genetic designer babies. They could be uh, brain-computer interaction. Perhaps in the 2040s or 50s, the crisis will be of work, which shatters the way we divide ourselves into laboring classes. Or it could be an environmental radicalism that strikes down the profit motive and battles over ecological responsibility in an era of climate change. I read a paper my wife found once on giving rights to plants, the way we give rights to animals. Look, the point is you want to think big. It could be that the new ideas coming to millennials are conservative in nature, even. Back in the 1740s, prior to the crisis years of the revolution, 
America experienced the Great Awakening, a religious reimagining that created the evangelical movement as we know it today. New theologies could throw shade on things we considered acceptable in the spring of the new society. There's already some evidence that Generation Z is actually more conservative than millennials or Xers. What comes after Generation Z? Well, that we have no idea about. Imagine the unimaginable and try to think of what would be completely unacceptable, because future generations will revisit those ideas. What results will be a cultural clash that will surprise everyone? As I start to close out this podcast, I want to tell you, I get it. This is kind of a scary idea. The idea of roughly 20 to 30 year cycles ruling humanity, throwing us into conflict with the universe and one another is pretty frightening. It makes you feel out of control. Destiny seems locked in. You also have to face your own mortality. Someday, you too will be in the winter of your life, watching the youngsters gunning for all you've built. Yeah, I'm right there with you. But on the other hand, there's freedom at play. There's freedom inside this cyclical structure. And there's a possibility to know what's coming your way. You can prepare. The cyclical nature of history is a promise that the wheel continues to turn, and you're doing your part every day that you live your life. However, Strauss and Howe aren't without their detractors. The fourth turning has been called pseudoscience. It's been said to lack scientific rigor, and with all theory, like I said before, it could have its shortfalls. I find that theories like this, like the fourth turning, become explanations for everything. Heck, after reading this book, I can't get the idea out of my head. I felt the same way I read Freud's Civilizations and Its Discontents and Marx's Capital. Ideologies, and this is an ideology, have a seductive power. Living through a crisis makes this cyclical history tool useful, though. Because even if you can't predict the future, you do know that there will be a post-pandemic world. We should be thinking about what comes next. We should consider what world we want to live in now. There's opportunities to be had for heroism all the time, just more so during crises. Heroism will be what we do now in the winter, but also what we do in the springtime. Time is training the next greatest generation for what they have to build tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Good luck out there in the tinderbox. And remember, one essential dynamic that I talked about in the fourth turning was how you have the senior generations of leaders having had no experience of crisis, no experience with actually exercising authority and building and maintaining strong institutions are going to be completely at sea. And, um, and eventually what you need is an entirely almost end run by a, by a new group or a new movement uh, or just one party simply to, to take control and be energized by a younger generation moving in. Um, and I, I, I still see that happening um, uh, early in this next decade.